Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal in Chicago. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by New York Times bestselling novelist James Grappando to talk about his new thriller, Code Six. Hi, James. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here today um, to talk about your novel. I should just start by asking, could you give us kind of a summary of, of the new book? Sure. You know, Code Six is a little different for me. I usually write legal thrillers. I would say probably 25 of my 30 novels have been in the legal thriller genre. This one is what I call a tech thriller set in the modern world of big data and the whole issue we now face today in society of data mining and the dangers of people giving up their private information so freely. And so it is the story of the young woman who is a playwright. And we can talk more about that, but that is sort of my, you know, I I ventured into that after writing 30 novels, I wrote my first play a few years ago about the world's first personal information catastrophe, which as many people don't realize was the way the Nazis were able to use census data in order to identify anyone of of Jewish uh, lineage. And that is how they identified people that they would then round up and take away to concentration camps. To me, it's the worst personal information uh, information catastrophe the world has ever faced. And so Code 6 is the story of Kate Gamble, who's writing a story about that. But she's also the daughter of a, a big tech executive. And while she's doing the research for her play, she uncovers secrets about her father's company, which are as dangerous or even more dangerous than those secrets that are covered about the Nazis' use of personal information 80 years ago. And the story takes off from there, of course. It goes from an artist's pursuit to literally Kate running for her life because she has discovered the secret of Code 6, the title of the book. And yeah, I, I was actually, um, one thing that did jump out at me straight away is, is not normally in a thriller that you you focus on a, a playwright. So I was kind of going to ask you about that, because it's my understanding that you're a, you're a big fan of going to Broadway and watching plays and stuff. Is that right? We are, you know, and both my wife and I just love going to Broadway. We're doing that now. We're in New York right now, seeing a, a couple of plays. And I have a client, um, you know, my overlap of my law career and, and writing, I have a client who's a Broadway producer. They've won more than 30 Tony Awards. And I've actually invested even in a few plays. I can't say those are the best investments of my life, but they've done quite well. I, I invested in um, probably Book of Mormon is the one that's the only one that's really good for me, which oh, is wow. not, not, a, not a bad gig. But for the most part, it is sort of angel funding uh, and our, out of our love for Broadway. And when I heard about 20 years ago, about the Nazis' use of IBM technology in order to facilitate their uh, sifting through mountains and mountains of census data. I always sort of knew there was a story there. I never knew that it would be a play. And so I did write it into a play with the help of the artistic director down in South Florida, Joe Adler. And so the play made its debut in late 2019. Now, as anyone who's listening and has been, you know, uh, not living under a rock for the last two years, we all know that the theater industry shut down essentially two months later uh, with COVID-19. So I couldn't have picked a worse time to launch a play. And so I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with this play that really got, we, we had 35 sold out performances in over 
a span of five weeks. The story resonated with people because it's not just interesting historically, but, you know, there are just such obvious parallels to the freedom with which 80 million people in, in Germany in the 1930s gave up every piece of information, personal information about, you know, what religion they were, what race they were, what all, all of this personal information was gathered. And we're giving that up now every time we click on a like on a computer screen. So I knew there was a story there. And Joe and I got together, put that play together. The play had a, an untimely death with COVID. And I thought, I like to ex- challenge myself as a writer. Why don't I write a play within a novel? And people can actually not only read the novel, but if they're fascinated by what they read in the novel about the play, they can actually go read the script for the play. You know, one of my favorite books was a book called Atonement, which came out about two th- around the year 2000, which was a yeah, play yeah. within a novel. But you couldn't go read the play. It was literally a totally made up play construct for purposes of the novel. And I thought this is a really unique reading experience that I think readers will find very satisfying. So they can read Code 6, and if they're fascinated by the underlying historical subject matter, they can also download and read Watson, the play. And what about Kate Gamble, the, the playwright? Like, um, can you, What can you tell us about the protagonist in your story? So first of all, it's very difficult for a man in his 60s to, to write a, a female lead character in her 20s. So I think I, I mentioned at the top of your show that my, my daughter, um, is she's 20-something, you know, mid-20s, living in the West Village of New York City, walking to work each day at this fabulous place, the Whitney Museum of Art. So I'd be lying if I didn't tell you. I, Kate Gamble is inspired by my own, my own daughter. Kate is someone who is willing to sacrifice in order to pursue her dreams, just as my daughter did. You know, my daughter, you know, um, was a ballerina with City Ballet of San Diego. And before that, you know, moved away when she was 17, moved away from home to dance with the um, Pacific Northwest Ballet in, in Seattle. So Kate is a lot like that, who really, even though she comes from, her father is the president of one of the biggest data mining operations in the tech industry. Her first love is the arts, and that is stage plays. But she's also very smart and very inquisitive which gets her into trouble in the story because the research that she does is thorough. And in this sense, the the book is somewhat autobiographical because like I said, I normally write legal thrillers. So for me to learn what I needed to learn about the tech industry, readers who normally read me will notice there was a two year gap here. This was the first, Code 6 is the first time I took two years to write a book. I had a book a year for 25 years. And I missed a year in getting Code 6 out there. And part of it was the research that I had to do to create a character like Kate Gamble, a a young woman in her 20s. Part of it was the tech industry. And part of it was just understanding. I wanted to get every bit of the historical story accurate and indefensibly unassailable from a historical research standpoint. And so took my time, worked my butt off, and Code 6 with the companion reading of Watson, the play, is the result. I should ask you about that, because I know research is really important to you, isn't it? So so what was the research process like? And what, what were the biggest challenges for you in researching the book? 
And I guess how how deep did you go? Did you go as far as visiting places, that, that kind of thing, to get that kind of reality in the novel? There's a, a couple things. One is I had to, uh, actually another intersection between the practice of law and writing is that I had a client who, um, his name was Hank Asher, and Hank was a pioneer in the whole field of data mining. In fact, when the terrorist attacks of uh, 9-11 happened, there was no Homeland Security at that point, but the people who went on to form Homeland Security reached out to Hank for his data mining capabilities to identify the hijackers of the planes. So I had that sort of resource, and that's such a great thing. You know, I, I just... People ask, you know, how do you practice law and write at the same time? To me, it's a great advantage. It's, it's not, not a disadvantage. I really do feel advantaged by the people I know, the connections I make, the clients I've represented, to be able to tap into their expertise and then put it in a form of entertainment. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I, I'm not going to write a tome on data mining and data collection, but all of those facts really are important to the story, right? Because it has to have that level of authenticity or it doesn't feel real. And that's key to me is a lot of my research ends up on the cutting room floor, but so be it. I still feel that the words on the page are informed by that research. And you, you mentioned you're primarily known for writing legal thrillers. So was, was this a big departure for you? And what, what were the challenges there? And, you know, being so kind of used to writing legal thrillers, but then maybe trying something a little bit different. So there has been a lot of changes, um, at least you know, from my standpoint. Look, in, in my career, you know, I'm I'm actually, as my agent jokes, I'm the most monogamous guy in the publishing industry, right? Because I've had the same publisher, Harper Collins, since 1993. I have had the same agent since 1992, and for 25 years, I had the same editor. I had a new editor. Uh, my old, my former editor retired, and so I had a new editor. And I, I took that as a blessing. And she was really receptive to the idea of my trying to expand myself from the legal thriller genre. I don't have anything bad to say about my former editor, but I'm not sure she would have been all that thrilled about the idea of getting away from the tried and true Jack Switek series that's been around since 1994, right? So, so my new editor was very supportive of this idea. She really loved the idea that the protagonist in the story was a young woman on the rise, both in the tech industry and in the arts field. And so that helped, but it was a challenge. And like I said, there's a reason there's a two-year gap between the last Jack Switek novel, 20, which came out in 2021, and Code 6, which will is um, two years later. Great. Well, that seems like a good time to take a break to hear a word from our sponsor. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, Join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there. This is Matt Reynolds, and I'm here with novelist James Scrapando to talk about his book, 
Code 6. So, James, I like to talk with novelists about their breaking in stories. So um, how did this all get started for you? It all got started back in the day when I'm going to go way down memory lane here for your listeners now. Okay, so this was even before Law and Order was a TV show. Um, In the late 80s, there was a show called L.A. Law. And L.A. Law was sort of groundbreaking in that it actually, I think it moved the audience forward years beyond what had ever been seen in terms of courtroom drama. And then Scott Turow, another lawyer author, uh, published a book called Presumed Innocent. And then, of course, there was this guy named John Grisham, who you may have heard of, (laughs) who, who came along and wrote a book called The Firm. Right about then, now we're talking early 90s, publishers were actively looking for the next John Grisham, Scott Turow, Law and Order, the TV show was the hottest show on television. And either, you know, arrogantly or naively, I looked at myself and said, I can do that. And so I spent four years writing a a legal thriller that to this day has never been published, but I did get an agent out of that experience and tried again. And, and that's when I wrote, I gave myself a time limit. I'm not, I spent, you know, I spent four years on the, on the one that crashed and burned. I'm not, I said, I'm not going to do that again, but I did write the next one in about eight or nine months. And my agent then Artie Pine, I'm now represented by Artie's son, Richard, Artie has passed away, but Artie was very excited about it, sold it to HarperCollins in a weekend. And there are now 19 novels in the Jack Switek series. And, happy ending. So how did you make that jump from like taking four years to write a novel to bang it and, you know, sitting down every day and getting it done in, in a matter of months instead? So, and were you practicing law at this time while you were doing this? Yeah, I was practicing law. And what's interesting about your question is that I was practicing law at a time when it wasn't normal at all to be working remotely. It was really about FaceTime in the office. I mean, I can remember, you know, I've been around long enough to remember how excited we all got when we had a casual Friday and didn't have to wear a coat and tie (laughs) into the office, you know, but we were expected to be in the office. So it wasn't easy to find the time. So my day was pretty much get in the office at eight o'clock in the morning, stay there till seven or 7.30 because I was working for a very large firm, go home, have dinner, maybe see some friends. And then I would write, you know, from, you know, 10 o'clock at night until midnight. And that went on for like four years, you know, so I was becoming not a very fun person, but I was, you know, it, it was a dream for me. It would always been a dream. I would not really say it was a goal. It was a dream for me since I was 11 years old to write a novel and everything seemed to fall in place when the publishing industry seemed to be actively looking for writers who could write for entertainment. We're all good writers. You know, you have the profession demands it, but not everybody can convert those skills into telling a story that has just enough authenticity so that lawyers don't roll their eyes when they read it, but it doesn't have so much detail and so much legalese in it that the general public 
just says, not for me. And what about like your time practicing as a lawyer? How much has that informed your work? And I know you said earlier, it kind of, when you're going through the research process, it's really helpful to have that background. But has that actually kind of inspired any of your legal thrillers? So I can honestly say that not a single case I have ever had has inspired a plot. As lawyers, we all have great war stories to tell about our trial adventures or a deal that was been closed and so forth. But for me, it's not helpful at all in terms of the plot. But where it's very helpful is the people you meet, the characters that you see, whether they be people on the witness stand or opposing counsel or colleagues in the office or even clients or friends of clients. Yes, that is a huge fertile ground for inspiration um, and, and creating authentic characters. Now, it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's not like you just recreate somebody you met and put them into a novel. What I would say is the advantage of practicing law is that we as lawyers understand motive. We know You know, what do people want? Why do they want them? What are they willing to risk in order to get whatever it is they want? And that's the key to creating believable characters, is asking all of those questions about your characters. And I think the most successful lawyer authors put that skill to use, understanding motive. I've also heard you say that writing novels isn't about ideas. Um, It's about actually sitting down and doing the writing. But where do you get your ideas from? Where where does the spark come from for for the ideas? Sometimes it is the proverbial, you know, lightning bolt, right? Where, you know, for example, The Pardon, my very first novel, believe it or not, that was, you know, I was out going for a walk one night and was stopped by a police officer and They were looking for a suspect in a case, and I fit the description perfectly of who they were looking for, except for one thing. And I remember the dispatcher describing the person they were looking for, and she said, he has a mustache. I didn't have a mustache. I breathed a sigh of relief. The officer let me go. And so... I had a very real feeling of, oh, my God, but for a mustache, I'd be in the back of that squad car right now and being and being taken down to the police station. And so when I say it's sort of like, you know, that where does the idea come from? In this case, it wasn't I, did, I didn't write a story about me as a lawyer almost getting arrested. I did what you do when you write thrillers. I took it to the most dramatic extreme I could. I had a very real feeling of what it was like to stand accused of a crime I didn't commit. So I I stayed up all night that night writing a scene of a man on death row hours away from execution for a crime he may not have committed. And if you were to pick up the pardon at a bookstore today, you would pretty much read that opening scene the way I wrote it that night. And so, so where do ideas come from? Usually it comes from feelings. You know, this, for me, it was a very real feeling. Sometimes code six is different, right? Code six is really more of just an awareness of the fact that especially my people, my children's age are giving up 
so much of themselves so freely that there has to be consequences for this somewhere down the road, something maybe not sinister, but certainly something to worry about. And so that percolated over years. It wasn't the lightning bolt. You know, Code 6 was more an idea that sort of percolated over time. But, you know, either route can produce a great thriller. And what about your process? You mentioned before that you wrote late into the evenings. What was your process these days to get your first draft down and get the novel done? I would say it's all pretty much the same, except for one thing. You know, when I was much younger, I would get up in the middle of the night if I had an idea, thinking, oh, this is great. I've got to go write this down, you know? You know, and history has taught me that usually those ideas that I jumped out of bed at 2.30 or 3 in the morning to write down, they really weren't that good. <laughs> you know, it was just, so I just, so I have, I have learned the discipline now. And I find now that my most productive time for writing is really right around seven o'clock in the morning till about noon. And I'm not one of these people who has to work in complete silence. I can go to a coffee shop or wherever and uh, not be disturbed by the noise uh, around me. In fact, I don't like the complete silence. It's, I feel pressure to write and I love the disturbances around me. And Do you normally go out of the house and to write or, or it just depends how you're feeling that day kind of thing? Well, it depends on if I need air conditioning or not. In Florida in the summertime, I'm usually in an air conditioned coffee shop where they keep it nice and cold. But down in South Florida, this time of year, I will sit out by the pool with my golden retriever who nudges me every now and then to remind me it's time to take a break and throw in the tennis ball. And so when you're done around noon, are you finished for the day or do you go back like in the afternoon and go over kind of what you've done? Well, I'm still practicing law. So that's, you know, that's my law. Pr I try to set up all the, uh, the meetings. I'm kind of like dealing with me, even though I'm on the East Coast, is a little bit like dealing with a lawyer on the West Coast, right? They're sort of three hours behind you. So that's sort of my life as a lawyer, right? I try to do the afternoons um, mostly for my practice. I should ask you one more thing about Code 6, because you mentioned the big data aspect of the book. And I was just wondering, because I've got kids and they're constantly on their phones. I was just wondering, did that have anything to do with the fact that we're so kind of tethered to technology these days? Did that have anything to do with the inspiration for the book? Yeah, we're giving up data every moment we're on our phone, we're about our location, where we go, what we buy. Everything is gathered through our cell phones. So yes, that's, that's a huge part of the, um, the inspiration for the plot, but it's also the reality of the problem we face as society. At what, what is the balance between convenience and privacy? And what are the consequences when we, we give up too much of that privacy? And history, as I described earlier in the show, history has taught that the, the consequences of that loss of privacy can be catastrophic. And so when's the book coming out? January 3rd, 2023. Both the book, Code 6, and the play, Watson, can be downloaded or, or purchased at your bookstores. Great. And so, so what's next on the horizon? So I actually have finished the next Jack Switek novel. So that's already in production. We don't have a pub date yet, but truthfully, I can, I can write the novels faster than HarperCollins can produce them. <laughs> so, so, so um, yeah, so Jack Switek will be back is next. Great. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
I'm Matt Reynolds for the ABA Journal in Chicago, filling in for your usual host, Lee Rawls. Thanks for listening to today's show. And if you enjoyed it, please rate us on your favorite podcasting app.